from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, August 17th. I'm Marco Werman. Three Russian punk rockers get two years in jail for hooliganism. We'll have reaction. And later, why some Cambodians don't like the TV show that reunites families torn apart by the Khmer Rouge. I have cried for 30 years, so I don't have to go there and cry again in front of the TV camera and to tell that, oh, you know, I lost my, my sister and so and so. Plus, the all-in-one backpack for farmers in Africa. There are a variety of things that come in the pack. First and foremost, seeds, testing equipment, how to test your soil for pH balances, that sort of thing. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The three jailed members of Russian punk band Pussy Riot are looking at more prison time now. The much-anticipated verdict in their hooliganism trial was delivered today by a judge in Moscow. The judge found the defendants guilty as charged of hooliganism motivated by religious hatred. The women were then sentenced to two years in prison. The three Pussy Riot members have been in jail since February. They were arrested after breaking into a Moscow cathedral and performing a protest song against Russian leader Vladimir Putin on the altar. Miriam Elder is a reporter in Moscow for the British newspaper The Guardian. She was in court today to witness the women's reaction to the verdict. Actually, the reaction didn't change pretty much throughout the entire hours-long reading of the verdict today. They actually just stood staring straight ahead. As kind of cheesy as this might sound, they really did look defiant. They were wearing their handcuffs inside the glass cage where they were standing to listen to the verdict and just looking straight ahead, uh, their arm crossed. Mm, so they don't get hard labor. What uh, what will they expect to be facing over the next two years? It's not quite clear the details as far as I understand. They'll be spending some time in a prison colony uh, somewhere in Russia. Uh, it's very rare that it happens to be near the Moscow region, which would be easier, obviously, for relatives. They'll probably be sent somewhere further away. And uh, usually do they get family visits? What, what will that be like? Yeah, but it's a, it's a very complicated bureaucratic process like most things in Russia. I know that when they were sitting in the pretrial detention center, the visits are very regulated, so uh, we'll have to wait and see. Describe the scene inside and outside the court today. There was uh, some outcry, wasn't there? There was. When the verdict was read, people inside the courtroom started shouting uh, for shame. There were some uh, opposition leaders inside the court. And outside the court, there were hundreds of, there still are hundreds of people gathered, a lot of them wearing Pussy Riot t-shirts, and just shouting, Russia without Putin, how much does your conscience cost you? And just being really, really angry. I talked to one woman who said, you know, we've been peaceful until now, but how much can we take? So it just seems like everybody's getting radicalized. It, it sounds like mostly you saw support for, for Pussy Riot. Was there anybody there? Or was there any interest on, on anybody who doesn't support the band? Well, I saw some reports of uh, some people who were supportive of the church having arrived today, but I didn't see any of them myself. 
But yeah, there, you have to remember that particularly outside Moscow, there are a lot of people who are incredibly conservative and incredibly religious and uh, probably to a great degree support what's happened today. Now, Pyotr uh, Verzilov is the husband of one of the women on trial. Uh, he's been in attendance. How did he react? I spoke to him uh, just as we were leaving the court, and everybody has this sense of, you know, they expected this, but they're still obviously very sad. And he said that all he had to say was, whatever Putin wants, Putin gets. Now, Pussy Riot was a sidebar to last year's demonstrations against alleged election fraud and against Putin's grip on power in Russia, but it's since evolved into the main story. Where does this leave, though, the opposition in Russia? Well, that's the question. And if you look at Pussy Riot, they are a punk band, but by Russian standards of protest, they are pretty radical. You know, breaking into a church or into even a metro station in Russia, which is considered a high-security object, is a pretty radical thing to do. And then the response of the state is quite radical, investigating these people, charging these people, and then sending them to jail for two years. So to me, it's just a sign that the entire situation is getting much more radicalized than when it started. The Guardian's Miriam Elder outside the courtroom in Moscow. The Pussy Riot trial has sparked an international outcry. Many in the West say it shows the lack of freedom of speech under President Vladimir Putin. But many Russians have mixed feelings about the case. Natalia Antonova is deputy editor of the Moscow News. She's in the Crimea. Now, we just heard from The Guardian's Miriam Elder uh, that this verdict seems to represent a radicalization for both the opposition and the Kremlin. What's your take? Well, I think that's probably true. I think that's probably exactly what's happening because, you know, I think that if you're uh, going to rule a country like Russia, the, the biggest trick is really kind of letting people heal And after this event happened, there has been no healing. There has just been more and more tension. And I think it reached breaking point today. And I think that this is very bad for everyone involved. So how much of a turning point is this for Russia, do you think? I think uh, that this will certainly impact how the criminal justice system is viewed, how the church is viewed, how art is viewed. I think this is going to have some long-reaching circumstances. You know, people will be writing dissertations about this event and how it, it came to shape Russian society. And I don't think that, that it will shape society in positive ways, unfortunately. Right. Well, fine-tune that for us a bit, Natalia, because the actual charge against Pussy Riot is committing hooliganism motivated by religious hatred. What is the role of the church yeah. here, and how much do Russians really care about the church today in 2012? Yeah, it's interesting because I think the church has a lot of symbolic meaning. You know, a, a very small percentage of Russians actually regularly attend services, but I think a lot of people uh, have a, a, they have a kind of a symbolic attachment to the church. I think people uh, are not particularly loyal to the church in any like a real sense, and yet they're deeply offended by, by the punk prayer and... and by the statements of, of the Pussy Riot girls, and uh, they're very angry, and their response is not constructive. You know what I mean, sir? Mm. Let me just ask you this. Do you feel today's verdict represents a limit to freedom of speech in Russia? I actually have not heard many ordinary people or even Russian journalists taking the free speech angle on this, because it just to them it's an, obvious, uh, it's an event that's obviously indicative of a kind of clamping down on just... Um, uh, not not free speech per se, but just the fact that, you know, you can, sure, you can protest and you can have a different political view, but don't make 
fun of the church. Don't make fun of the Kremlin. If you make fun of the Kremlin and the church, there's a very high price to pay. Natalia, we should point out you're not just a journalist. You're also a playwright. So I'm curious to hear from you whether this verdict will have a kind of inhibiting effect uh, for artists, you know, using culture to express dissent. Is there still a role for art uh, in dissent in Russia? I think actually it won't have an inhibiting effect. I think more and more people feeling more and more desperate are going to protest through their art. And the forms that this protest will take will be really interesting to study and to see. And uh, my, my, my real worry is that, you know, a lot of artists are religious. A lot of the religious are also trying to find their, their place in the art world. And the fact is when, when these verdicts are carried out, then... Uh, they create these artificial divisions, which are really bad for for everyone in the long run. I mean, I'm I'm Orthodox myself. I I'm, you know I'm, I consider myself a regular old or Orthodox person. I'm also a playwright, and the fact that I also now have to worry about you know what if I you know I have a, I have a play about a, a priest, a very short early play of mine that I wrote that was performed in Moscow, and looking back on that play, it's a very positive portrayal in the end, but, you know, gosh, what if someone wanders in, sees that, and decides that their sensibilities were somehow offended? I mean, obviously, the play was not performed in a cathedral, but who knows? You know, nowadays, we don't know where that line is drawn. I don't even think that the authorities really know where to draw that line, and that's what's scary. Well, thanks for sharing all that with us. Natalia Antonova, deputy editor of the Moscow News. Thanks very much. Take care. You can see how the case of Pussy Riot has made its way into political cartoons around the globe at theworld.org. I'll give you a hint. Ski masks. The Khmer Rouge ruled Cambodia for just four years in the late 1970s, but they were brutal years. A quarter of Cambodia's population perished. To destroy traditional bonds of authority, the Khmer Rouge split families apart. Even decades later, some were never able to find their missing loved ones. But now a Cambodian reality TV show is reconnecting lost family members and televising their dramatic reunions. Brendan Brady visited the set of the show and sent this story. The show is called It's Not a Dream. Viewers are asked to send in their stories of missing loved ones. Some of those who write in get their stories read on TV or the radio. A lucky few are reunited with their families in front of a live audience. It's a gimmick, but that's not a problem for Mung Ramari. I saw the TV program that finds lost family members, and the family seems so excited. Ramari is 33 and lives in Phnom Penh. In the 1970s, the Khmer Rouge forced her parents to marry. After the Khmer Rouge fell, her father left her mother, who was pregnant. So she's never met her father. I want to meet him even if he's sick or poor. I want to have the chance to offer him my love and whatever I can. It took the producers of It's Not a Dream a few months to track down Ramri's father, Sokem. And on this night, she's finally going to meet him on television. When Ramri arrives at the studio, she's whisked away to a waiting room. Producer Prak Sokoyuk doesn't want to risk Ramari bumping into her father backstage. We separate them and also we, we also arrange different time for them to arrive here. So uh, we will make sure they, they won't meet before the time we let them meet. Ramari's father comes in with one of his daughters from his current marriage. He's in his 60s and in poor health. On stage, the host asks Ramari about her childhood and the hardships she and her brother endured. Her father's sitting on the other side of a flimsy divider, watching her on a live video feed. Ramari's brother is also on stage, 
and the host asks them if they're ready to meet their father. So Kem emerges from backstage. According to Cambodian tradition, Ramri and her brother prostrate themselves before him, and he falls to his knees to embrace them. It's a moving moment, just the kind that Prak, the producer, tries to engineer. She says you have to be careful not to drag it out. I'm very worried about the emotion. Even it's real, but uh, when we try to talk it longer and longer, it will uh, make the story not really good. But not everyone appreciates these dramatic effects. Yuk Chang is director of the Documentation Center of Cambodia, an NGO that researches Khmer Rouge history. Yuk lost much of his family during the Khmer Rouge's reign. He says he wouldn't want to go on this sort of TV show. I would not want myself go there and cry. I have cried for 30 years, so I don't have to go there and cry again in front of the TV camera and to tell that, oh, you know, I lost my, my sister and so and so. Yuk appreciates that the program helps bring families together, but he thinks it's more about entertainment than national healing. Prox says that while she is trying to create good television, she continues to be touched by the stories. It's not only a fairy tale that uh, we used to hear, but it is true one for every family. And when we see a reunion on stage, even for me, I cannot stop crying. As for Mong Marie, she's grateful for what the show did for her. But she's now trying to connect with her father in a more natural way. She's begun to visit him on weekends to get to know him, away from the cameras. For The World, I'm Brendan Brady, Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Stage lights and family reunions. Reporter Brendan Brady sent us a slideshow from the set of It's Not a Dream. That's at theworld.org. PRI's The World is more than a radio program. Theworld.org is your daily update of events beyond our borders with links to reliable news sources around the globe at theworld.org. The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. South Africa is in shock one day after police officers fired on a crowd of striking mine workers, killing 34 people. The incident has revived memories of police violence under the country's racist apartheid regime. Today, South Africa's police chief said officers at the mine were forced to open fire when armed protesters charged at them. And President Jacob Zuma cut short a trip to Mozambique to make his way to the scene of yesterday's shooting. Reporter Gia Nicolaides is with Eyewitness News in South Africa. She's heading back to Johannesburg right now, but she was in Maracana where the protests occurred yesterday, and she witnessed the shootings. Gia, you were there. What did you see? Well, what happened was that the police had been trying to negotiate the truth with this group of protesters for several days, and yesterday they decided to move in after pleading with them to hand over their weapons. They refused, and the police were went in with the water cannons, and they used rubber bullets, stun grenades, and tear gas to try and disperse the crowd. The National Police Commissioner today said that they used minimum force at first and only opened fire once the protesters had opened fire on police. So it was in retaliation to that. So were you able to determine yesterday whether that was true, that, that the miners really did the first aggression here? It's very difficult to say. What we did see is pictures and footage of the six firearms that were recovered from those protesters. But it's difficult to say who started opening fire first. 
And we know that the National Police Commissioner has taken full responsibility, saying that she gave the policemen on the ground the responsibility to do what they needed to do in order to disperse the crowd and restore stability to the area. But I think the main question is, who opened fire first? Mm. Was it the protesters or was it the policemen? Were, were any of the victims police? Yesterday, the victims were only protesters. But this violence has been going on for a week now. The protesters embarked on an illegal strike last week, Friday. And that's when the violence actually started. And two security guards at Lonman Mines were actually killed. Two police officers were hacked to death on Monday afternoon. The protesters actually attacked them with spears and pungas. And they were killed during that attack when police were trying to disperse a small group who had gathered. And several attackers were also killed during that attack in retaliation. But before this actual incident yesterday, the one that's made international headlines, 10 people have been killed brutally. And the police have been trying to negotiate a truce with them for several days in order to disarm them and to make them disperse from that particular hill where they had been gathering at, mainly because people in the community, policemen and security at the mine were being threatened by these men who were heavily armed. Gia Nicolaides, who was in Marikana, South Africa yesterday and witnessed the protests and shootings that took place. She's a reporter with Eyewitness News South Africa. Gia, thank you. Thanks so much. Mining is a big industry in many African nations, but agriculture touches many more lives on the continent. In Kenya, there's a small company dedicated to improving small-scale farming in Africa. Backpack Farm is a franchise business that does exactly what the name implies. It sells local farmers an all-in-one backpack containing everything they need to start or maximize their farming operations. And they get training as well. The world's Clark Boyd writes about Backpack Farm in his latest column for the BBC Future website. Clark, tell us a little more about this intriguing company. Well, it's uh, it was started a few years back by a woman by the name of Rachel Zedek. She has a very interesting background, mostly doing development in post-conflict situations. So she's worked in Bosnia. She's worked in Kosovo. Before she went to East Africa, she was in Iraq for three years doing mm. work. And then she decided to turn her attention to East Africa and Kenyan in particular. And I should just probably let her explain some of the reasons behind that. Africa is the breadbasket of the world. There is pride in being a farmer in Africa that I have never seen anywhere else. In East Africa, Eastern Sub-Saharan Africa, the way to impact the mass majority of the human beings in that region is through farming. All right, so that's the rationale, Clark, for the farming backpack. What's actually in the pack? So, Marco, there are a variety of things that come in the pack. First and foremost, seeds. Uh, also, you know, testing equipment, how to test your soil for pH balances, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Also included, obviously not in the backpack, but if, if you buy the biggest pack from them, you also get uh, a drip irrigation kit and a water tank. So obviously that doesn't fit in the backpack, but right. but most of the stuff that they're talking about does fit in a backpack. And it's it's geared toward people who farm two to five acres, which in East Africa would be considered a small to medium-sized business. Is it helping farmers? Absolutely. In fact, they've got a number of franchises that have sprung up uh, across the country. Um, there are quite a few people are using it. And th the biggest push that comes with this is not just the materials. It's the training that goes with it. Right. How does that training actually work? Well, uh, the training can be done on the small farms that are set up as sort of uh, teaching farms, franchise mm -hmm. centers. Uh, but as you'll hear Rachel talk about here, 
mobile phones are a big part of their plan. My goal was to impact the lives of a million farmers by 2017. And the only way for us to do that is with mobile included in, in the strategy. Now, I know there's a major prevalence of mobile phones in Africa. How does uh, Rachel actually uh, propose using mobile phones to spread this technology? Well, the way they've done it so far is that they developed an SMS, a text messaging platform, and they call it Kuza Doctor. Now, Kuza means growing in Swahili, so it's literally growing doctor. Oh, cool. And um, the way it's worked, it's, it's sort of like an SMS phone tree kind of thing. In other words, they start out, a, a farmer, you know, he's paying for the text messages, but they're getting information about how to grow certain crops, how to answer certain questions. Do you have enough water? Do you know where you're going to sell your product? Do you know what kind of crops grow best? It's really a text message exchange that can lead farmers in both English and Swahili through how to grow more than two dozen different crops. So is this SMS text training system working? Yeah. In fact, they just won an award for the Kuza Doctor platform. Uh, from the National Peace Corps Association here in the United States. They won a $5,000 prize. Mm. Plus, they actually have big plans to build on this, uh, given the prevalence of mobile in Africa. They want to, they're already uh, working on developing a smartphone application, and uh, eventually they hope to have a tablet version of this as well. So they've, they've got, uh, they've got serious, uh, serious plans for the use of mobile technologies. The world's Clark Boyd, who writes about the backpack farm in Kenya in his latest column for the BBC. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Marco. You can find more information on Backpack Farm and read Clark's column at theworld.org. The Terra Nova is your first clue for today's GeoQuiz. We're looking for a city along the North Sea coast of Scotland. It is about a third of the way up the east coast of Scotland. Uh, So we are north of Edinburgh and uh, south of Aberdeen. So we're facing out onto the East Coast, but we're in a very nice little uh, estuary. That estuary is called the Firth of Tay. So this Scottish city is where a whaling ship called the Terra Nova was built. The ship has an interesting history, including a starring role in the 1912 race to the South Pole. This summer, a team of scientists was sonar mapping the seabed off the coast of Greenland. And the scientists spotted something lying there on the seabed. Sure enough, it's the shipwreck of the Terra Nova. So name the Scottish city where the ship was built, if you can. We'll hear more about her daring days sailing the Southern Ocean later in the program. Marco Worman, ahead, the Afrobeat singer whose stage act channels the legendary Fela Kuti. I think Fela was, a, was an amazing dancer, and movements can express words. So when I'm on stage, if I say if I'm trying to delve into the spirit of Fela, I'm trying to be true to the movement of the word. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Confusion in India today as thousands of people continued fleeing the south and west of the country. The people on the move are from India's northeast, and they're fleeing because of rumors, apparently fueled by text messages, that are warning of possible ethnic or religious attacks. Prime Minister Manmohan Singh has appealed for calm, and he told Parliament today that India's unity is at stake. Anu Anand Hall is a freelance journalist in New Delhi, and she's going to help us unpack this rather complicated story. First of all, Anu, explain who is fleeing and what they fear right now. The people who are fleeing are residents of the northeast of India, and you might wonder what that means. Well, what it means visually is that they look more East Asian than Indian or South Asian. And they're people who work in the rest of India in IT or in services. And the reason they're fleeing it's pretty strange, but it's interesting. It's it's rumor that has been doing the rounds in the form of text messages, tweets, and chain emails threatening people specifically from the Northeast, saying that they would be targeted, saying that some people had already been killed, and saying that they should, quote unquote, go home to their uh, home states in the Northeast before the Muslim holiday of Eid, which is going to be on Monday. Mm. So they're actually getting onto trains and they're leaving places like Bangalore, Hyderabad, Chennai, Mumbai, all these big metros and going back to Northeastern states. Now, you said uh, a lot of these emails and text messages are threatening these people uh, who are fleeing. Who is behind these messages? Well, that's the great mystery. No one actually knows what the source of these threats are. The government has actually moved to ban bulk text messages and mixed media messages for the next 15 days. They'll tell the big telecommunication companies that you can't allow any cell phone user to uh, send more than five text messages at a time. Mm. And that's in part to try and stop this panic. And that can be enforced. That's a pretty practical solution for the next 15 days. They've done it before. They've done it uh, when there have been sensitive court decisions. I have family that live in, in Kashmir, and for months at a time, you can't send or receive text messages if you're in Kashmir. So it is enforceable. Um, what they can't obviously police is the Internet. So Anu, a bit of background is in order here. I think uh, recently there were about 50 deaths in Assam. That's a state in the northeast of the country where these people are fleeing back to. Is there a connection? There is a connection in the sense that for the last several weeks, there have been horrible clashes in Assam. And the clashes are between a tribal group called the Boros and people that they are calling migrants, mostly from neighboring Bangladesh. That means that they do tend to be Muslim. But the, the conflict is not a religious one. It is really about resources. And it, it goes back to the fact that for decades now, Indian politicians actually in states like Assam have allowed thousands upon thousands of migrants to come in. And they do it because it creates an immediate vote bank. So for short-term electoral gain, they will give voter identity cards to illegal immigrants um, and say, well, vote for me and hence I remain in power. But what it's ended up doing is it's ended up creating this horrible conflict between their own citizens and between people who are coming in for economic opportunity. And that has boiled mm. over in recent weeks. 
India is incredibly diverse in religion, ethnicity, economically speaking. I mean, aside from clamping down on bulk text messages, is the government in Delhi prepared to deal with this particular situation? Well, they've been very, very severely criticized for not owning up to the fact that politicians have created this problem and they have not tackled it and they've sort of swept it under the rug for decades. Uh, They are also being criticized for the fact that they're trying to ban social media and text messages when what they need to do is to engage with people. A lot of people are saying, well, look, you know, you can ban text messages, but that's a tiny solution. It's a Band-Aid and it's not going to solve the problem. So, you know, the Indian government is kind of doing what it sees fit. But no, I, I don't think that anyone feels that they're really tackling the root of this problem. Journalist Anu Anand Hall joining us from New Delhi. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next story is also about religion in India, but this is about something that unites people of different faiths. That something is halim, a meat delicacy associated with the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. But in India, it's a dish enjoyed by Muslims, Hindus, and Christians alike. Reporter Lauren Kirby got a taste at the top-producing halim factory in Hyderabad. When I arrive at the Pista House halim factory, there are 12 enormous colanders of lamb meat eight vats of clarified butter called ghee, and a king-size bedsheet full of garlic blocking my path to the kitchen. But within minutes, these materials are swept up and put into production. Every day during Ramadan, Pista House produces thousands of pounds of halim, a delicacy that can best be described as a smooth meat porridge. And this is our... uh Uh, mutton cutting area and we are going to our main kitchen. The Pista House kitchen has brick walls and dirt floors. There are about 20 cauldrons that stand a little more than waist high, each with a fire burning underneath it. This is a halim uh, uh, cooking uh, 10 hours uh, uh, wheat, meat and all spices and green chili uh, 10 hours and we uh, mixing the raw material, the spices. First, the wheat and the meat are boiled for 10 hours until they form kind of a chunky paste. That paste is then moved into a separate set of cauldrons and they shake a giant bag of what looks like potpourri into the meat. We use number one quality of spices. This is our specialty. Clove, cardamom, shazira, rose petals. Then, about 20 gallons of pale yellow ghee, the clarified butter, is poured into the mix, and two men spend the next two to three hours rhythmically mashing the meat with giant wooden poles until it becomes totally smooth and thoroughly infused with the famous Pista House flavor. Halim is originally an Arabic dish brought to Hyderabad by the immigrants of Yemen Arabs, Iran, and Afghanistan. However, Majid first tried Halim on a trip to Saudi Arabia 20 years ago during Ramadan. He was very impressed with the dish. They need many calories, so they eat Halim. The high-calorie Halim is the perfect way for Muslims to break their Ramadan fast each day, which is why Pista House is in constant hustle mode during Ramadan, Every major city in India needs its halim by sundown. We have 346 outlets in Hyderabad and Secunderabad. We daily sending halim. We had 30,000 orders from US. 
we are not having any license for sending halim to US. Very heavy demand in US, and we are planning to send halim in US in uh, 2013. Even though halim is considered a predominantly Muslim food, Majid says it's just one of those things that helps bring people together. This is not for any religion. This for human being in India and Hyderabad. All people shall eat uh, Hindu, Muslim, Christians, uh, Mohammedans. No problem. And it's true, as the sun is setting and Pista House is preparing its last batch of the day, the hundreds of men gathering outside Pista House's main branch next door are a mix of both Hindus and Muslims, all united in their common love of halim. I've never had halim. Huh? Yeah. Please uh, take halim and eat. Okay. Well, uh, and you tell what, what's the taste of halim? Huh? <laughs> we go to our branch. We go our main branch. Abi, uh, come here. Halim is coming. Halim uh, is coming. Yeah. Uh, waiting for five or two ten minutes. The stuff on the top is coriander. What is this liquid? Ah, uh, this is a pure ghee. So I have like a smooth meat porridge, and then on top you've poured pure clarified butter. Ghee, pure ghee. Butter, not not pure ghee. Makes all these sounds like oatmeal. So this has been cooked for 13 hours. This next door. It's actually quite good. Oh, very good, yeah. You like? <laughs> I do like it. It it looks a little funny, but it's it's actually very good. I can see why you're so famous. Oh yeah. <laughs> Reporter Lauren Kirby there enjoying her Halim in Hyderabad, India. I heard there was good halim here in Boston at Darbar, an Indian-Pakistani restaurant just around the corner from our studios. They make the dish with beef, not lamb. So guess what I had for lunch today? You can watch as I get my first delicious taste of halim and check out the world-famous Pista House halim virtually, of course, at theworld.org. Researchers have discovered a famous shipwreck at the bottom of the North Atlantic. The ship has been identified as the Terra Nova. The Terra Nova was considered one of the finest Scottish-built wooden ships ever, and she made some daring voyages on the Southern Ocean. It's a ship that Brian Kelly knows well. Kelly's at the Discovery Point Museum in Scotland. Well, the Terra Nova was actually built right here in Dundee, uh, just a short distance from where I'm speaking to you from just now. Uh, she was built in a, a shipyard owned by a company called Alexander Stephen and Sons. Dundee, Scotland. That is the answer to our geo quiz. And of course, it was built in Dundee. That's why we called you because you're there in Dundee. Now, this <laughs> ship went on to be much more than a whaling ship. It was used during the early expeditions by Robert Scott to reach the South Pole a hundred years ago, right? That's correct. Yes. Robert Falk and Scott made two expeditions to the Antarctic. The first one was on a ship called the Discovery, which was also built here in Dundee. And the Discovery still exists. It's actually sitting just outside the window I'm looking out at the moment mm. in the dock.、Uh, he went south on that ship, but the Terra Nova was used as a relief ship at the end of that expedition to help bring the、uh, the crewmen back. Ten years later, Scott decided to go south again in the hope of reaching the South Pole. And on that occasion, the Discovery had been sold to another company, and he wasn't able to use that. So he decided to buy the Terra Nova instead and use that as his main expedition ship. 
Right. Remind us, though, how that second uh, polar expedition Scott went off on, uh, how did that go? It wasn't very good for Scott. On his way south, he received a message from a Norwegian explorer, Roald Amundsen, to say that he was also on his way south. So what Scott had seen as being a, an expedition on his own, it turned out to be a, a sort of race for the pole. Mm. Uh, but in the end, when they finally reached uh, the South Pole, uh, Scott and his four companions in January 1912, they discovered the Norwegian flag uh, beside a tent at the pole and Amundsen had arrived at the South Pole about four weeks before Scott and his team. So they had that bitter blow uh, that they were not first to the Pole. Mm. And then secondly, on the return journey, they had about 900 miles to walk back from the Pole to get back to their base camp. And sadly, the weather proved to be very, very bad on the way back. And Scott and uh, his four companions died on the return journey. The Terra Nova, the ship lived on, though. What other expeditions was this ship used for? And why was it up in Greenland eventually? Well, after they came back from the uh, the Discovery Expeditions, the relief ship, it spent a couple of years on Arctic expeditions with some Norwegian explorers heading to try to get to the North Pole, although they didn't manage it. That was 1905-1906. Then after that, it went back to its whaling and sealing uh, work, sailing out of Newfoundland mm. off the Labrador coast. Uh, by the 1940s, or at the start of the, the Second World War, the ship was commissioned to take supplies from Newfoundland over to Greenland to the supply the military bases there. And it was during one of those trips on the return journey that it hit ice uh, just shortly after leaving Greenland and began to sink. Uh, so an SOS call was made and the US Coast Guard ship, the Attack, went out to rescue the, the crewmen. But as the ship was going down, they were concerned that the ship wouldn't sink properly, being a wooden vessel. Mm. So they actually shelled Terra Nova to make sure she sank properly. So uh, this wonderful ship that had a very long and illustrious career had a rather undignified ending uh, of being, being deliberately sunk. So when will it be raised and how complicated an operation is that going to be for a wooden ship? I, I think it's probably unlikely that it may be raised. From the imaging that was taken by the survey ship, it looks like she was quite badly damaged when she hit the, the sea floor or, or hit something on the way down. Uh, so I think generally the ship is probably not going to be in good condition. Uh, so whether it will be seen as a, a worthwhile project to try and uh, salvage what can be salvaged from the ship, uh, I, I don't know. It would be very nice if we could have the, uh, the Terra Nova back in Dundee alongside the Discovery, but I, I'm not sure if that's something that we're going to see happening. Well, as you point out, you have the Discovery there in Dundee. When you go aboard the Discovery, do you get a sense perhaps of what it might have been like on that second ship, the Terra Nova, to travel with Scott to Antarctica? Yes, the, the ships are fairly similar, uh, and we have restored the discovery very much to as it was during the, the Antarctic expedition. So when you, you walk on board, you really have the feeling that you are on board in the time of Captain Scott. So it's a, quite a remarkable mm. experience. So, Brian, imagine you didn't know the eventual outcome of Scott's disastrous 1912 Antarctic expedition on the Terra Nova. Scott was looking for crew for that exploration. Would you have volunteered? I would love to go to the Antarctic. Uh, I spend most of my, my job here working with school pupils who visit and telling them about going to the Antarctic. I'd love to go and see the Antarctic, but I'm not entirely sure that I would like to have gone under the conditions <laughs> that uh, they sailed in. Uh, when you're on the Discovery and you realise what, what a small ship she actually is, to imagine yourself being on the deck of the ship, going through the sorts of seas you get in the Southern Ocean, I can't imagine it being a very pleasant experience. Yeah, I, I guess you get a fair taste of that there uh, overlooking the Firth of Tay. Uh, no yeah. need to drop the temperatures any more than that. <laughs> Yeah, certainly. During the winter months when we have snow in the ground here as well, it's, uh, it's very atmospheric on the Discovery. <laughs> Brian yeah. Kelly, an education officer at the Discovery Point Museum in Dundee, Scotland. Dundee is the answer to our geo quiz today. Brian, nice to speak with you. Thanks. Okay, thanks very much. 
Check out photos of the Terra Nova shipwreck at theworld.org. Now, as for today's GeoQuiz texting game winners, they may not be polar expeditioners or ship historians, but Graham in Chicago, Sarah in Chesterland, Ohio, and Giacomo in Ocean Beach, California came up with Dundee. You, too, can sign on for the next expedition. Just text GeoQuiz, one word, GeoQuiz to 69866. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A lot of musicians can recall a moment in their youth when perhaps they saw someone performing live music and were filled with the passion and desire to become a musician themselves. Such is the case with Amayo. Let me give you the full thing. The full thing is Abraham Ayodele Tokumbo Amayo. But he goes just by Amayo these days. He's the lead singer for the New York Afrobeat band Antibalas, and he says he got his first exposure to the thrill of Afrobeat at The Source in the famous Shrine nightclub of Nigerian Afrobeat king Fela Kuti. Amayo and Antibalas have just come out with their latest release, and it's chock-a-block with that Fela spirit and sound. Amayo told me that when he was 12 and he saw Fela, it was hard to resist being swept up by the Afrobeat energy. It was quite overwhelming because it was the spirit and the air at that time was one of like, it was a pretty volatile place to be because of, you know, you know, what Fela represented, you know. So, you knew you were either going to be facing, you know, some other type of altercations outside or whatnot, you know. So kind of it a was, dangerous experience for a 12-year-old. Exciting. exciting. It's not dangerous, you know, because I mean, think of all 12-year-olds, all 12-year-olds today, they always want to be aware the excitement is at, you know, when, you, when, when something is going down in a neighborhood, you know, the kids want to be out there. They want to, they want to observe it. They want to be part of it, you know. And since 2000, you've been in New York City and uh, the frontman for the Afrobeat band Antibalas. What took you to Afrobeat? Was it your experience growing up in Lagos, seeing Fela at the Shrine, or was it the coincidence of meeting the guys in Antibalas? It was both. You know, like, we all, like, constantly, every year, we have moments where we reminisce about being back home. And I was in one of those moments remembering Fela, playing Fela's music. So I was, you know, celebrating, you know, Fela, you know, which I do every, every, every time I get a chance to, if, you know, if I, if I feel like, you know, relaxing and remembering mm. what my purpose should be, you know, because he's the one that I would put on a couple of Fela music, you know, he would basically just remind you, you know, where you are, what you should be doing, you know. And a lot of things have evolved since 2000. The new CD, uh, titled Antibalas, is again another brilliant outing for, for the band, sticking very close to that authentic Afrobeat sound. But it should be said that this is the first Antibalas album since the band performed as a house orchestra for the Broadway musical Fela. Now, in the band, you, Amayo, kind of assume that imposing Fela-like leader on stage. But the musical had this talented Sierra Leonean performer, Sar Ngauju, who played Fela. I'm wondering, first of all, did you audition? 
there was a time like in the, in the beginning of um uh the director Abilty Jones was when when he when when the audition stages were going on and I was I was I was part of the the team that was um coaching the actors and I did I was obviously Abilty Jones had asked me you know he asked me you know have you ever thought of acting you know I said well <laughs> I mean, jokingly, I was just like, well, you know, I'm, I'm acting every day, you know. But uh, maybe that may have, <laughs> maybe I would have been asked to, to participate a little bit more. So so the band was busy being the house orchestra for Phila, and then the show goes dark. What was it like finally getting back in the studio with the band after, you know, a couple of years that Phila did that run on Broadway? It was quite easy because a lot of us kept on um, doing many things. Like I moved on, I traveled to Brazil, spent some time there. I was able to teach, taught some, some seminars and got me, uh, you know, taught some, you know, Afrobeat workshops and was able to really get into all the depths of it. You know, so it, it, it allowed me to bring like an, a different attitude to, to this record, you know. I think it's just the beginning of, you know, where we're going to be going with this. I want to just get back to your own kind of acting. You, you say you kind of are acting every day. How, how do you channel Fela on stage? I mean, are there Fela-like gestures that you aim for in, in your own work and your own persona and in, in the music? Um, no, I wouldn't want to say any any particular gesture. I think Fela was, a, was an amazing dancer, you know, and for me, being... Um, a movement buff. It's those movements that first attracted me. So I'm, I'm already like a, what you, if you want to, you know, call me like a movement freak. Mm-hmm. And movements can express words. You know, if you will, like you can make your words more, uh, more effective if you have a movement attached to it. You know, so that's kind of the place that I am. Where when I'm on stage, if I say if I'm trying to delve into the spirit of fellow, I'm trying to be true to the movement of the word. And, and and I think if if one tries to like be true to that, you know, you can add more power to it, and you can, it, in, in effect, if I'm singing his words, I can put a movement to it. I might even look like Fela's movement, but it's actually I'm I'm trying to delve a little deeper into the root of where those movements are coming from, you know. Well, speaking of the movement of the word, I mean, Fela was renowned for being a journalist of sorts via his songwriting. I mean, he always dealt with political topics that were kind of ripped from the headlines, shall we say. What are the big headlines on the new Antibalas album that, that are getting the Nigerian Afrobeat perspective right now? I mean, what song is for you the big story of the day? Obviously, if I don't say Dirty Money, then I, right. then, you know, I'm... <laughs> that's the lead track on the album. <laughs> exactly, because that's just kind of like the economy of today... It's like this is this is like something that we've all been we've all been living, you know, from the people who are, who consider themselves as virtual slaves to those who are downtrodden on, you know, and everyone is feeling it. Well, other tracks on uh, this new Antibalas album are equally groovy, but uh, we'll go out with what feels like this instant classic called "Dirty Money." Amayo, lead singer for the Brooklyn-based Afrobeat ensemble Antibalas. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Ow. Drowning in the river, you call him. 
Maybe you can channel Fela Kuti by way of Amayo and Antibalas. We have tour information and a video of Antibalas on stage at theworld.org. Eric Goldberg composed the world's theme music from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, Supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.